you'll be interested to know. Intelligence informs us that the German aircraft industry has been converted almost entirely to the production of fighter planes for defense, and that these fighters are being withdrawn from the Russian front to beef up the defense on this front. Looks like they must have heard about the 918. <laughs> Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Wookiee Genome Project, the podcast about everything Star Wars that isn't Star Wars, but also with some Star Wars. I'm Diamond Rob Russo, nerd ex-checker to his majesty, Tom, King Tom Chansky, who joins me today, my lead. How's it going, Rob? Thanks for having me. Oh, oh, it's, uh, it's an honor. It's an honor. Um, on this show, we explore the pop culture DNA of the Star Wars films, that is to say, the old adventure serials, cowboy films, comic books, and pulp fiction that shape the saga we know and love today. This episode uh, is the second in our special series where we cover seven films that Ryan Johnson, perhaps you've heard of him, he screened them for the cast of The Last Jedi, and we'll be pairing each of these films with a special chaser from the uh, days of uh, Star Wars uh, gone by. And this will, we'll be doing this right up until the release of The Last Jedi, so stick with us and be prepared. This week, uh, we watched a 12 o'clock high, a 1949 war movie directed by Henry King and starring Gregory Peck, and we're chasing that with X-Wing Rogue Squadron a 1996 novel by Michael Stackpole, which is based on the popular series of LucasArts uh, space combat adventure simulation games. Before we get started, I might as well, uh, I'm sure most people who would be listening to my little show would already know uh, King Tom, but uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and... Uh, my name is Tom Chansky. Uh, I go by the name King Tom, as Robert said. I'm a Star Wars fan. I got involved starting listening to Now This Is Podcasting, which led to me listening to Blue Harvest, which led to me listening to Steel Wars, uh, and a number of other podcasts. And I'm not only a Star Wars fan, I'm a Star Wars fan. I'm a fan of these Star Wars podcasts, and I love contributing uh, when they'll let me. And uh, I, I think it's just such a great community that we have here, that we can you know be fans of the saga together and we can have these in-depth discussions about not only what's going to happen in the next movie, but also like what you do, where you look at the uh, inspirations for the movies that George had when he made the original trilogy. And now that the current generation of Star Wars filmmakers like Ryan Johnson have when they're making their Star Wars movies. Yeah. Now you mentioned Ryan Johnson, who happens to be in kind of the Star Wars news right now. And normally don't do a lot of news on the show, but since it's so close to when this, uh, when this information dropped, um, that's the interesting thing, right? It's like, that's the, that's the amazing news we got is that Ryan Johnson's going to be, uh, kickstarting a trilogy of completely un, un, uh, unrelated Star Wars 
uh, movies that are going to take place at some place in the galaxy that has not been explored ever in Star Wars lore, which I think would include even like everything, like even stuff that's not canon, but maybe not. I don't know. It implied that it was not, there was not going to be any legends influence on this, which I think is very exciting. Yeah. I mean, in a way, uh, it's not so much the lack of influence. It's more like, I feel like if they say it's never been touched, I don't know what they're talking about an area of the galaxy that's never been visited or they mean literally like everything, like a topic story, uh, location characters that have never been dealt with is what it sounds like. Maybe I'm reading too much into that, yeah. but probably have to wait to find out and drive ourselves mad with trying to figure it out. Well, um, we just, you and I were both just uh, doing a Steele's call-in show tonight, <laughs> yeah. literally minutes ago. And um, the, uh, an interesting thing that um, I think I, I put this out there on Twitter uh, and uh, it seems Jason Ward kind of came to the same conclusion separately. I don't, he probably didn't read what I said at all because um, everybody was talking at once when the news dropped. Yeah. Um, but uh, he and I both kind of came, arrived separately at the same conclusion, I think, which is that it's probably has to do with some of the, the revelations that are supposedly Luke Skywalker discovers on Octo or Octo or Octo or whatever. And uh, it, which was mm-hmm. kind of, it was brought up early on, I think earlier this year, like around celebration, there's some talk about like he discovers something about, ancient Jedi history that kind of changes his perspective on his mission in life. And then they kind of stop talking about it. Um, but that's, I think they, am I, am mm-hmm. I misremembering that or is that the, no, I, I seem to recall the same exact thing. And it was also around that time. I think that Ryan was asked how much influence the story group had. And I got the impression that it was more, he had the ideas and they told him what would work and what wouldn't rather than ideas coming from the story group or from someone else and saying, put this right in the movie. Uh, let me let me just do a public service here for the fans um the story group does not write stories they are not writers no um they do not tell people they do not come up with even story ideas necessarily and tell people you are going to you are assigned to do this you are assigned to do that that is not what they do that is not what any of them have ever said they do and pablo hidalgo the only one who is active on twitter as far as i know has repeatedly denied that that's what they do <laughs> and <laughs> nobody listens to him no nope. um i joke with him about this sometimes and he always gets like he doesn't know who i am i'm just one of the <laughs> millions of people who talks to him on twitter but but he you know he always seems to get a kick out of any uh jokes i make at the expense of people who credit them with having this master plan which i don't think they have what their job is no is if they were called the story janitors that would make a little bit more sense and that's not to like Meaning they're supposed to keep things tidy and Mm -hmm. their job is to avoid a situation where you've got three different versions of the bounty hunter on Ord Mantell, which is what happened back in the day. Um, Anyway, uh, about, okay. So (laughs) where could they go though? That isn't um, that you think has not been touched by anything. That has something that hasn't been touched by anything. The only thing I could think of is a group of force users on the other side of the galaxy trying to establish something that, you know, the Jedi haven't reached them. And it could be either be in the distant past or it could be something running concurrently along with the saga that we have right now. Just a bunch of people who in whatever struggles are going on in their civilization, find the force. Uh, And that, you know, they've been saying ever since the force awakens came out with the Knights of Ren 
Maz, Bendu. Yeah, there are these other people in the galaxy that use the Force. You don't have to be Jedi or Sith to use the Force. So maybe if they're gonna if they're gonna say it hasn't touched anything within the galaxy we know right now, that's what I can see. Um, but I've also you know had speculation about well, there it could be the origins of the Jedi, or it could be someone tangentially related to the Last Jedi that they're going to explore. I if I had to bet, and I don't, but I could. <laughs> Hit me up, guys. Uh, no, uh, the uh, <laughs> uh, I would say it's it's uh, I w- I think the f- not necessarily the founding of the Jedi, but some pivotal thing in ancient Jedi history would be the most likely. Yeah, and my reasons are twofold, uh, or my 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 reasoning is is uh, not twofold. I guess I'd say two ply. How about that? <laughs> um, I would say that number one is because we know that there's something that Luke learns about the Jedi that changes everything. Now this could be something very recent in the Jedi history, but I I don't think they're going to want to touch that stuff. I think it's going to be like, you learn something about like, Oh, like the Jedi were like, they there's, it was like a schism deep and early in Jedi history that like the Jedi order that was that, that Luke knows and that Ben Kenobi was a part of is like a, 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 like uh not necessarily like, heretical sect or something of the thing, but something is like deeply, deeply wrong. And because he's looking at stuff that even Yoda wouldn't know about. So I think that's it. I think they're going to learn something about uh, the other kind of like some other side, other part of the galaxy. And there's going to be something really disturbing or weird or completely unexpected about Jedi history that changes everything and makes him realize that this is a mistake and there shouldn't be any more Jedi. Um, That's so that's, I think it's going to be an ancient, ancient history. Uh, and I don't think it's going to touch anything that's been done before. I think it's going to be weird. And uh, it's, it's, you gotta, to me, if nothing else, the announcement of the new trilogy thing just sh- says that like everybody at Disney and Lucasfilm from the bottom to the top thinks that Ryan Johnson is like their guy and that the last Jedi is like the movie. And uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a huge vote of confidence. Yeah. You would, you wouldn't give this to Richard Marquand. Well, yeah, you're you're uh, yeah. We well we can we'll have to save that for later. Uh, there's so much to go into here. And I also want to say like the cool thing about having you on here, Tom, is I think like I'm kind of infamous for for knowing a lot of minutia. But from what I've talked to you, like you have me ranked far and away. Like you really know all kinds of stuff that I, if I ever learned it, I forgot it. So. I could say the same thing when I listen to you. So yeah, see, let's just say we're talking. Here's the thing. I insert new and completely original facts every time I talk and I don't even know which ones they are. So uh, <laughs> some of the stuff I say is very much citation needed. Um, I've been wrong before. I have to. So the TV series, what do you think about that? You know, I, I, I think it's it's been on my mind, but I've just been more so blown away by the new trilogy that the TV series is back burner. Um, looking forward to it. Would love to see it. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a rehash or an updated version of um, the underworld. They might use some of those elements, but I, I would hope it would have some familiar faces, maybe not completely new, maybe set between um, Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens. I can all but promise you that's when it's going to be set between. I just don't know where. I would yeah. get like the easiest way to guess or the best way to guess is to look at the stuff that the uh, expanded universe can or not expanded you know, that, that that carries legends connotations. But you know what I mean? Like the the non movie stuff hasn't touched. There have been no comic right. books or, or novels or anything that goes anywhere near like the middle 
20 years between you've got stuff about like the first couple years after return of the Jedi and the last few years before the force awakens, but everything in between is a blank slate and they don't tell you anything about it. And they're very careful to make sure that you know, that the empire disappeared from the known galaxy Mm -hmm. shortly after, you know, and that I think is what you mentioned something about this, uh, about there being another part of the galaxy, discovering the force kind of uh, separate from everything else and negotiating that in their own way. I think it's going to be, a uh, short series about a part of the unknown regions, which is the part of the galaxy that apparently you can't get to easily or something. I don't really know how it works. Right. I haven't even explained it's, that. It's not outside the galaxy, but you have to, although some of it might be in an arm that goes outside, but navigating there has required hundreds of years of study and failed expeditions. Right. And that's part of what Palpatine was doing because he, that, that's where he thought the dark side came from right it's an idea that goes all the way back to the thrawn novels the original thrawn trilogy yeah and um which i think is a both over appreciated but mostly underappreciated series of books not necessarily that's the best star wars stories ever told but i feel like uh mm-hmm. tim zahn is, has a better grasp on a lot of star wars concepts than most people do like in terms of like he, it's a very science fictiony version of it Mm-hmm. And which is why you've got stuff like it's on the edges of the known galaxy or beyond the realms. It sounds very like Isaac Asimov almost in some ways, like the foundation, right? It's on the edge of the galaxy. If you remember those books. Um, yeah. Or early, early on with the, it wasn't called the EU at the time, but the EU, there were a lot of authors and even in, in the Marvel run who it seems like they had their own concepts that they would try and put over star Wars where there were some authors like Zahn and uh, Brian Daly, it felt like they got Star Wars. And I think that was important to the growth of the literary part of the universe early on, to have those authors who, who got it, like you're right. saying. Right. And like eventually one of the things, if this if the show uh, grows to the, if this podcast grows to the point where I could support it, I would like to one day do a like kind of side podcast that's just a campaign within the old West End Games role-playing uh, Star Wars uh, oh. thing because that um, continues to be a major source for a lot of uh, details that you probably don't mm-hmm. realize or that most people don't realize are there. And it's mostly because of Pablo, by the way, because he, he got to start writing yeah. for those. Uh, I think he actually got his very first dipped his very first toe in a Star Wars by submitting like illustrations for one of the, the source books or something like that in the nineties. But yeah, I, I never played the game, but I, you know, I was, I was big into comic books that, back then. I was like the only kid in my high school who was into comic books and Star Wars. And I saw the role-playing guides at, a, you know, my comic book store before the Zon books even came out. And I saved up my money and I bought everyone I could because it was Star Wars and because it had these stories and these illustrations. And to me, it was just amazing. So I never played the games uh, just because I didn't have any friends around yeah. who did. Um but I, I loved those books and I, I still have a very, so even, you know, even though they're up in the air as to whether they're still canon or not, I still love those stories and have a soft spot. They're more canon than almost everything else. Like because yeah. there are people at Lucasfilm who have affection for them. I think the Brian Daly, everything Brian Daly touched is not canon. Mm-hmm. It's like pseudo canon because. If, yeah. Because in the corporate, it was in the corporate sector and. It was an ambiguous time in Han Solo and the Millennium, Millennium Falcon. That's in, lives. Yeah, I'll have to. I'm going to do a whole series uh, shortly before the Solo movie gets released about uh, Han Solo's uh, 
early, early adventures. And I really have a very high. I, we got, I got off way off topic here. Okay. So, so what I was thinking was, okay, so the unknown regions, right? It's a part of the galaxy that nobody knows anything about because nobody's been there. And mm-hmm. it's going to be like an invasion story. It's going to be like the first episode would end with like people who are on some like kind of uh, sort of like lower, I would say like lower sophistication planet. Um, like that's like Star Wars tech, but kind of like 500 years, you know, out of date in a sense, like they're way behind mm-hmm. maybe. And so like that gives the empire a fighting chance and just like a star destroyer shows up and it's like an alien invasion. It's like independence day, except there are stormtroopers coming out of the mothership, you know? And that to mm-hmm. me, like you just have one planet because you it's got to be cheap and it's got to have stuff that's recognizable in it. Cause it's got to yeah. sell the streaming service. So you got to have something and it can't be Luke or Leia or Han or anything like Chewbacca. It can't be any of that stuff. It's going to have to be stormtroopers. That's your only option. So I think that's mm-hmm. it. It's going to be a star destroyer shows up at the end. Storm stormtroopers like take over and it's going to be like a, you know, I hate to say it, but it's going to be kind of like not games of Thrones, game of Thrones type thing. But I think that's what it's, I, I would, now I'm almost certainly wrong about this, but to me, that's the best way to do it. And they're going to have a version of the force that is not called the force. Um, I could see that. Or they could just go with the force cause it's more marketable, but it's like, they don't have the Jedi. They like predate the Jedi in that area. And so they have a totally different tradition, no lightsabers. And I don't know. <sighs> I, 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 I'm probably totally wrong about that, but to me, that seems like the most obvious move. And maybe that's why it's not likely, but they've been leaving it alone for a reason. Anyway. So Ryan Johnson, go Ryan Johnson. He screens 12 o'clock high for, uh, I don't know whether he screens it or whether he just recommends that people watch it. And I'm sure that in like 10 years, we're going to get like an interview with John Boyega. was like, Oh yeah, I didn't watch that at all. No, I, I mean, yeah, I just, yeah, it's, it's a terrible John Boyega impression, but, um, I don't, it's hard for me to know exactly what he sounds like. Cause he, in most of his movies, he's not, he, he's doing, he has an American right. accent. And yeah. it, I think it's pretty good. So, it, it's yeah. The first time I saw him, he is uh, on twenty four, and then I see him in interviews for stars. I'm like, when? It, why is he doing it in English accent? Dude's American, right? I was wrong. <laughs> could he, he could have done what Christian Bale did, where he just like does all of his press tours and stuff with the accent? So yeah, so twelve o'clock high is one of those movies. I think this actually is of the seven that he recommended people watch. I think this one mm-hmm. might be one of the the real kind of pole stars of of those influences. Um, because as we know, last Jedi deals, at least uh, seems to be dealing a lot with the, the, the burdens of leadership, right? Mm -hmm. So we've got Leia, uh, as a general, which I'm really cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. And every time I bring it up, like it just, it just kills me a little bit because I know that there, this was going somewhere and we're never going to get to see Mm -hmm. it. And God, that just kills me. Yeah. But, um, but I, and also because I know Carrie Fisher would have just blown it out of the water, just would have killed it, you know. And I'm sure she does. I bet. I bet people are going to be talking about her. This, this, you know, she, she could. It's not beyond the realm. She could get Heath Ledger, right? She could get like a posthumous. Uh, like it's now. It's I don't think it's likely because as great as she is an actress, I don't think she has like the kind of uh cachet that Heath Ledger did when he died, but still like I, it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility. She gets like best supporting actor or actress rather for, for uh, this, if, if it's really good because her family is like, you know, of course Hollywood royalty. Right. So, um, and mm-hmm. I'm sure Hollywood at this point really wants like a happy story to tell at the end of the, uh, 
movie. But yeah, so this is like it's a leadership story, right? So here's my here's my TV guide summary, and you're old enough to remember TV guide, right? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, I remember getting the TV guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly after the U.S. entry into World War II, General Frank Savage, not a real person, but based on a real person, is assigned to the a hard luck bomber squadron, which is suffering from poor morale after a disastrous daylight bombing run. Savage is determined to whip the men into shape before their next pivotal mission, but privately struggles with the horrible responsibility of leading young men into certain death. And that's the part I wrote. And the rest of my notes are right from Wikipedia. So um, <laughs> no, not that bad. So it's got, it's got Gregory Peck in it. He plays a brigadier general, Frank Savage. And I don't know about you, Tom. I mean, you're a King. So oh. technically you're the commander in chief of all armed forces in the, the nation of Tom. Yes, um, or yes. the whole, or is the Holy Chansky Kingdom? I like the Nation of Tom. Okay, the Nation of Tom. Okay, um, so you're above this, but to me, like if I had to pick like an official rank here, I, w- I would choose Brigadier General because I feel like it's the coolest sounding one. It is, but it's the lowest. I know. Yeah, I, I understand that. Look, I, I know what I'm giving up here. Oh yeah. Well, but but just to be say Brigadier General to me, like just saying, oh, I'm General So and So. It's like who cares? Brigadier General. Well, that sounds important. Yeah, it's all about it's all about appearances with me. I'm totally surface value, totally surface. But you only have one star where all the other generals have more. Yeah, I, I would just make it a big ass star. Wow, <laughs> I think it's my solution. Just be a gigantic star. It's going to look like a sheriff. I'm There's no like, regulation on the size of the star. You can make it as big as you want. So, uh, yeah, that's Gregory Peck. I mean, if you don't know who Gregory Peck is, well, you probably don't. I mean, a lot of people who listen to this show might not. So he's uh, you'd probably know him best from To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Yeah, uh, he did a pretty good Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, which was written by Ray Bradbury, science fiction connection, um, the, the movie version, not the novel and um, and many other things. One of my favorite movies, I mean, he was in Boys from Brazil towards the end of his career, which is an interesting movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, my favorite movie was made right after this. Um, not my favorite, but my favorite Gregory Peck movie, uh, same director, too, was uh, The Gunfighter, 1950. It's a Western Starring Gregory Peck. It was immortalized in a Bob Dylan song called Brownsville Girl. Uh, the rest of the actors in it are kind of lower, definitely not of Gregory Peck's stature. There's Hugh Marlowe, uh, who plays Lieutenant Colonel Ben Gately. Um, he was mostly, um, almost entirely a supporting actor. And uh, a lot of these actors were actually in a lot of the same movies, which makes me wonder about like how these people got cast. But um he he was in uh, All About Eve as you know supporting actor in All About Eve and uh, some classic science fiction films. The Day the Earth Stood Still. You've probably seen that. Yes, a long, and, long time ago, but I have seen. It. And Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which was a uh, Ray Harryhausen joint, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was also in a uh, Elmer Gantry, which I've never seen, but almost all the other actors in this movie ended up being in Elmer Gantry and some. Uh, it was about some like a uh, fire and brimstone preacher or something like that. Gary Merrill is in the movie. He played Colonel Keith Davenport. Um, he's also another, you know, perennial uh, supporting actor was also in all about Eve. And that's where he met his soon to be wife, Betty Davis. And uh, he, uh, they, they stayed together for the rest of their lives. Very interesting. Oh, wow. And a lucky, lucky man, uh, Betty Davis. It's hard to top that. It's hard to top Betty Davis. I would always feel like I would, I would feel kind of, intimidated by betty davis i think i yeah i think so. i wouldn't have a, i mean it is what it is i would have a problem with that i mean i'd be okay with that don't, look, don't don't get me wrong yeah. right yeah it's like let's, no. but but still it's like i would you know it's be like i'd be like i just can i just like change the channel i want to see like american ninja where she'd be like no i'm betty davis <laughs> like what's your problem you're sleeping on the couch tonight 
I'd be like, yes, ma'am. And yeah. uh, uh, so uh, he wasn't in really that much else. I think he did more TV, which I wouldn't. It's hard to find. I mean, TV in the fifties, especially, is a, is an absolute nightmare to figure out because a lot a lot yeah. of it was live, actually, which is really weird. But um, uh, Millard Mitchell played Major General Pritchard. Uh, he's a character actor. He's probably my favorite guy in this, uh, besides Gregory Peck. He was the uh, the the crusty old uh, guy. Um, he looks kind of yeah. like a high school football coach. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also in The Gunfighter, and he was in uh, other movies that I've seen, uh, Winchester 73, Singing in the Rain, and The Day the Earth Stood Still as a general, although he's uncredited. So he's one of the guys like, blast it, blast it, kill it, mm-hmm. fire all the tanks at the, at the metal man, right? Yeah. Good movie. Everybody should see it. And he's also in a movie I've never seen or heard of, but it's got the best title ever. Grand Central Murder. <laughs> now tell me you don't. I've never Im- heard of that one before. I mean, either. But I want to I want to see it. I got to see it now. Even if it's terrible, the title alone, like, you know, it's going to come up. It's going to be Grand Central Murder in black and white, right? Like some glorious, like type, mm. you know, face in there. And it's, you know, dirt. Sounds like a Lionel Hutz joint, doesn't it? Or no, no, not, yes. not Lionel Hutz. Uh, uh, Troy McClurk. From, no, no, yeah, yeah. Troy you may remember me from some movie. Says the president's neck is missing and Grand Central Murder. Uh, yeah, and then the other guy I have here has actually won an Oscar for this movie. Yeah, Dean Jagger, um, or possibly Jagger, who played Major Harvey Stovall, uh, won Best Supporting Actor. Uh, he was also in a great western called Bad Day at Black Rock and Elmer Gantry. Um, so, and the interesting thing I found, uh, on Wikipedia about Dean Jagger is that when he tried to marry his second wife, um, Gloria Ling in 1947, they were denied a marriage license in California due to a state law forbidding unions between Caucasians and Mongolians. Um, Ling's father was apparently born in China. So, uh, there was actually a law on the books in California. You could not marry a, uh, a, uh, a Chinese person. Wow. Can you believe that? And of California, of all places, it was not what it, what it is now. I'll tell you that. Yeah, like, uh, very different place. I don't know. I always think of Twelve O'clock High as kind of like the dangerous minds of the Air Force movies, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the badass teacher movie, except it's a general who shows up and shapes the uh, the squadron into shape, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it is actually used. And the reason I saw it, my wife was taking uh, graduate. She went to graduate school for public policy. And, you know, when if you have a spouse or anyone that goes to graduate school, a lot of times I, I think you deserve part of the degree because you do a lot of work and everything with them. And she had to watch the movie for a management class because it is an ex- it, she wrote papers on this movie um, and it's, it's held up as a model of um, goals and relations in groups um, and the way that Savage goes in and like you said, you know, like with dangerous minds, trying to change the situation, meld them as a unit. It, it's a, it's a lesson that holds up today, and I I'm very curious as to why the, or how Ryan Johnson thinks this applies to the Last Jedi. I do want to get into that uh, very soon, but I kind of want you to go on and, ex- and and kind of explain like what does uh, I'm just can we just call him Gregory Peck instead of General Gregory, Frank yeah, that's, Savage? Yeah. That's fine. That's what fine. does Gregory Peck do, and like how does he? 
how does that work out? Like he shows up to the squadron. It's what's it called in the movie? Then the nine eighteenth. The nine eighteenth. Okay. Um, early World War Two, before D Day, uh, to give England a little bit of uh, respite from the war. The Allies decide they have to start bombing Germany, and one of the most successful ways the Air Force sees as doing that is daylight bombing runs. However, they're very dangerous, and a lot of the units don't come back, or you know they they come back with heavy losses. But those type of runs get the most bang for the buck, so to speak. So this one unit, the 918th, they have, uh, uh, they're too chummy with their um, pre-Gregory Peck commander, and they really have no discipline. So the Air Force installs Gregory Peck, and he immediately lays down the law. He analyzes the situation. He realized, I think during the movie, uh, the upper echelon does realize that they have these young men that they're sending to their deaths. And how do you go about doing this? How do you see the humanity in them while still treat them like instruments of war? So um, Peck lays down the law. He stops um, being close to the pilots. um, But very clearly, he says that everyone, one of the major changes he makes, he says everyone is going to fly. He says everyone has to fight, um, which I think, you know, to, to the audience, that sounds a little, yeah, everyone should fly. Yeah, they are there to fight. But if you look at what was going on in the movie, a lot of these pilots were kind of trying to get out of flying or, you know, they, they were there to have fun, not to fight a war. He really realigns the mindset of the unit um, he, he, it's, it's a lot of tough love. Um, he weeds out some of those that are causing trouble. Um, he brings like the, the flight surgeon. He, I think he promotes, um, to, he, he has allies that he, he, he backs up and they back him up and the, the squadron changes from this, you know, lackluster group of losers to, to, to a unit that can make a real difference in the war. Yeah. Kind of like the un... The unspoken thing, not necessarily unspoken, but kind of it's not really dwelt upon, possibly because a lot of the audience would have known it Mm -hmm. in 1949, not because they served. I mean, the reason why I think there's so many fighter pilot movies in the late 40s, early 50s is not because um, they were necessarily going to be the most. They were the best possible stories you could tell. I think it was because relatively few people who served in the war were actually flying bombers and, and, and fighter planes. And therefore you don't have to worry about just traumatizing your entire audience um, by, by showing them like, you know, you know, the invasion of Normandy or something like yeah. that. That's, and so like, because as you said, like early on, they, they needed to bust up and slow down the German munitions and, uh, and, and supply lines. And what they're going after, I think is our factories that create ball bearings. Um, yeah. which are one of these incredibly yeah, simple mechanical elements that are going to countless machines. And, and yeah, they do it during daylight because you can get better targets. And they also, what they didn't have, uh, at least in the American army air force at the time was long range fighters. So if you don't have, uh, any kind of force presence in France or Germany, um, and you're going to be bombing factories in those, that's parts of Europe, you need escort fighters that can actually fly as long distance as the bombers can. And they didn't really have that until maybe like around like the era of like the, the famed P 51 Mustang 
right. like people like Chuck Yeager were like famous for flying those. And but so that's it's like, like you you need the X wings and A wings to accompany the Y wings. Or right. Y wings won't make it. Yeah, exactly. And I love how they show the Y wings using bombs in Rogue One, where they establish that the Rogue, uh, the not the, the 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 rebels have the ion bomb, which is kind of yeah. like it's something the Empire apparently never has ion like debilitating technology. So it seems to be like a rebel thing. It's like their secret weapon. Right. In some of the in some of the video games, they do. Yeah, in the Tie Fighter video yeah. games, they do. Which we'll we'll actually yeah. we will cover in this episode, hopefully. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like it, it makes more sense if you have to have a giant land-based cannon to disable a Star Destroyer, like the only way to do it from space should be something other than a cannon. It shouldn't be something that fits on a Y-Wing. So they have bombs and yeah. it's awesome and I love everything about it. But yeah, like, right. Like, so the the X-Wings and the, you, you have to have the, and we're going to see some of this actually because there are bombers in The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. They developed an entirely new kind of ship um, and there's going to be like a ball turret gunner and that's like going to be like Rose Tico's mm-hmm. sister is a ball turret gunner. Um mm-hmm. But yeah, so they lost a lot of bombers this way. And so that's, I think, yeah. part of the reason why the squadron's morale is so low at the beginning is yeah. that, like, they just did a daylight bombing mission on some of these ball bearing factories and they got slaughtered. They probably, yeah. and, and this is in real life, this is what happened. It's like there was, a, I can't remember the name of the, of the, of the town that they bombed, but this is what happened. It was like in August 1942. And they send a bunch of bombers in with no escorts and they get devastated by the ground artillery and a lot of them don't make it back. And it, it like, and they try it again in October, which also happens in this movie and even less make it back. And, uh, and it was a big problem. It actually, um, really crippled the, uh, American air force for the first like year of the war. What was this, yeah. was this issue? But anyway, but yeah, that's, that's the idea is like, he's got to do this tough love thing, right? The Michelle, is it Michelle Pfeiffer in dangerous minds. Oh, I'm drawing a blank now. Uh, me too. I just remember Coolio. So Coolio is yeah. like now. So, uh, <laughs> hey everybody, it's your boy Robbo here, Diamond Rob. Uh, just gonna hit the old coffee break to try to keep this one short. Would you believe? You wouldn't believe. No, really. You, seriously, you wouldn't believe how much time I've spent on some of these. Uh, way, way too much. I just get so wrapped up in it. You know, I'm really, really into uh, to doing this for you guys and and putting on a good show. And also, I like to hear myself talk. So, um, I want to thank. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't thank King Tom. Uh, for for showing up kind of at the last minute. Uh, I was supposed to be doing this with uh, Johnny Grasso. We were going to do Gunga Dean. Um, as far as I know, that's still possible. I really want to get him because he knows his history. He's a history teacher. And so he could really fill in a lot of the blanks on that. So, you know, keep your fingers crossed. If you really want to hear it, hey, hit him up at uh, Rogue One Johnny on Twitter and tell him, hey, Rogue One Johnny, why can't you watch a 90-minute long movie? It's not that hard. Yeah, so, um, no, don't, don't be mean. Don't be rude. Uh but we were kind of in a rut because we, we had a lot of news to cover for this show. And like I said, normally I don't want to just cover like the news of the day, but this was big news. You guys, whole new trilogy, totally different part of the star Wars saga lore, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's a big deal. And who better to talk about it with than uh, his majesty. Right. Um, so some of the facts that I was going to get out there, but, but couldn't do it about uh, the movie 12 o'clock high, which uh, you may find interesting. Um, well, the first one is, is, is as you, if you watch the movie, you'll probably notice that there's a lot of kind of 
uh, a lot of the, the air combat scenes, there's like grainy footage and stuff like that. Uh, it seems just a little bit lower resolution than you'd, you'd expect. Not resolution, really. It's lower film grain, lower quality. And that's because uh, they used a lot of uh, actual uh, World War II newsreel footage and, and uh, uh, army shot footage and even um, a fair amount of Luftwaffe uh, footage from, from the uh, German uh, fighter pilots that were taken, which is um, pretty interesting. And that's the reason why the film was in black and white. Um, they were really planning on doing it in color, but then you can't use all that stock footage, can you? So, um, which is why a lot of, a lot of these, uh, air combat World War II movies are in black and white is not just because that was the cheaper way to do it back then, but also because then you can don't have to like, you know, stage your own uh, dog fights. You can just use the stuff that was already out there. Um, but it is kind of weird. Cause when you think about it, you're watching a lot of times people get like shot down and killed in the air. And in, in this movie, like that's, those are some real on camera deaths. If you think about it. Um, but you know, I don't recommend that the film actually had uh, 12 B 17s available um, to shoot. Uh, some of these, they could only uh, could only be flown or used for very very short periods of time because they had uh, just been used in the 1946 uh, Bikini Island atomic bombs experiments, um, and so they were still kind of sort of radioactive. Uh, so anyway, it's time to get to our uh, review and question of the day. As a reminder, if you leave a five star review on iTunes for Wiki Genome Project and ask a question in that five star review, I will answer that question. Um, and that's what I'm going to do now. And I would really, you know, we got, uh, I think one new review in the last week, which is great. Um, but I really do want to hear from you and you don't have to think of a great question. Just think of a normal question. Sometimes those are the most fun to answer. And, um, I really do try hard to, to answer them in the most entertaining way possible. So this, uh, this next uh, review and question is from a Mr. Nate August, who writes, Robbo does a great job summarizing the original Flash Gordon serials that inspired George Lucas. My question for the podcast is this. What inspires you creatively? Art, movies, other podcasts, cough, steel wars, cough. I guess that's a cough, steel wars, end cough, right? Like, end quote, end quote. Um, keep up the good work. The show sounds good. And that Boba Fett skit was very funny. Well, in terms of like art and, and other stuff, like what I want to do is, I guess I'm inspired by anything that I like, I like deep dives. I like shows that, uh, or, or I like, I like shows that go in and explore a topic in depth and, um, I'm trying to think like, I guess, I guess like in a way, like one of my biggest inspirations would be the um just the man himself george lucas like i so yeah that's i mean uncle george is a huge inspiration just like all the stuff i learned about movies all the movies i wouldn't have watched like i probably wouldn't really be that interested in movies if i didn't learn early on about all the stuff that went into making star wars and which is still my favorite movie of all time so that's a huge inspiration steel um i won't lie like I didn't realize I, I would have an audience of any size to do this show if it weren't for the fact that Steel had call-in shows and then I get all these wonderful comments and constructive criticism about uh, my contributions to that. And those are really kind of madcap, kind of zany. I'm mostly just trying to make Steel laugh, exasperate him. That showed me that there were actually people out there who l l would tolerate me and, and might even actually like, like share some of my interests. And that's just it. Like The rest of it is... I can't do what Steele does. I'm not as funny, and I'm not nearly as good of an interviewer. But I felt like the one thing I could do that uh, my other favorite Star Wars uh, podcast hosts uh, weren't doing. They could probably do it if they want to, but they aren't. 
and and that is um kind of use star wars as a, a, a communicate a an appreciation of star wars in a that is different not superior not uh, more valid or anything like that than than the normal like way of of just appreciating movies you like which is fine but there's a lot of interesting stuff back there my ambition is that as the show gets better as i as i hope it will um it will be become better and better at spreading that love around and and inspiring the listeners to my listeners to to go out and just look for some old weird crap hunt something down you find a mass market paperback from like the late 60s with a really lurid cover that looks uh that looks crazy fascinating weird pick it up buy it that's probably a dollar two dollars read it tell me about it like what's cool about it what what is worth revisiting you know like so remember um the castle toy run is ongoing uh check it out at uh castle toy run on twitter i believe or just search for that or you can ask uh, mr haas burkhart and uh, that's a great thing to do also please 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 uh uh subscribe on itunes to this podcast leave us a five-star review give me a question in that review so i have something to do for these breaks and look look how much effort i put into this like that's what you'll get and all you have to do is leave a five-star review um so uh yeah i'll uh, see you next coffee break space cowboy back to the show So he, he's got to come in. He's got to do the tough love thing. And he's also got this issue where like everybody hates him, of course, because he's coming in and saying like, you've got to fly. You've got to fly. Everybody's going to get out there and risk their lives. And he like uh, demotes like the the troublemaker in the group and forms something called like the leper colony. Right. With like he he puts yeah. puts all like the worst people, I guess. And one bomber, like the people who never who always find a way of like not fighting. And he mm-hmm. says, you're going on every mission <laughs> until you shape up. And, uh, of course, cause it's a movie, they become like badasses, And, uh, and then, but he, he, he starts to get, uh, like some kind of fallback from this or fallout from this where people start requesting transfers to other squadrons. And he's got to make friends with the, uh, what, what is this Colonel? Who is this character? Anyway, he's like a, a former world war one fighter pilot who in his civilian life is also an attorney. And so he's really good at dealing with like bureaucracies and stuff. And so Gregory mm-hmm. Peck asks him to like find a way to slow walk these guys uh, transfers to give him enough time to actually, cause, cause Gregory Peck, I wish I would just call him by his name, but I won't. Um, <laughs> Gregory Peck's plan is like, he's going to make him do some like kind of remedial training and everybody's going to have to fight. And his, his idea is like, if he can get them to survive like a, 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 a largish mission, um, Mm-hmm. that it will improve morale and they'll see that uh, like, you know, doing things the right way works. And even if you're risking your life, like teamwork and discipline saves more lives than it risks. And, uh, and they're, they function as a team and all, all the other stuff that you would get in a dangerous minds type movie, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And so they do, and they come back from a mission. And uh, I think, is this actually what happens? Like they, it's the mission is like, trying they're tr- the the command is trying to abort the mission and send everybody home early and gregory peck fakes like a radio 
uh, malfunction. Yeah. And they finish the mission and they come back unscathed. Like they don't lose a single plane. Right. From that point on, the men kind of adore him and they actually stick up for him because he's certain that he's going to get demoted and reassigned or something like that. And is already packing his bags. And then when the high, you know, the, the top brass comes in to check out the thing, what they see is that all the men have removed their request for reassignment. And, and then they go on. And then and then after that, kind of like the end of the movie, did I, did I get the facts basically right? Because I can't. Yeah, from what, from what I can tell. But then after, after they have that success, they are depended on. So the Air Force starts flying them more. But Germans adapt to the tactics and the missions start getting more deadly and deadly. Um, command wants them to go and uh, attack Berlin. And... Um, this whole time, Gregory Peck, you know, he, I think they were saying, oh, you can move up and you can leave the squadron if you want. But he felt they still needed him. So he stayed and he was supposed to be in the plane, one of the planes flying over Berlin. But he, I guess, had a mental breakdown and couldn't make it up to the plane. I might I might not be getting this right, but my memory of it is, they, is he goes up with them and uh, it's another mission where they it's like the, it's like the second part of the, of the original disaster mission where they uh, lost a bunch of planes mm-hmm. and uh, doing the ball bearing factories and they go back and do it again. And I think that he loses quite a few ships as they did in real life or not ships. I'm still thinking star Wars. Mm-hmm. He's quite a few bombers <laughs> and, uh, and they come back and he can't, he starts to have like a breakdown. And, um, I mean, it's literally like, they don't call it in, in the, in the movie. And at the time they would have called it combat fatigue or battle fatigue, but nowadays, yeah, yeah, World War one, it was shell shock. And by world war two, it's battle fatigue. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and now we call it post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which is something that is an amazingly powerful, uh, debilitating, force that that affects people in ways that mm-hmm. in all kinds of different ways and i don't think that that is um yeah. the way they address it here is i think he just kind of goes catatonic right like he in yes it's, yeah. to the movie's credit and i think this is one of the reasons why um people at the time who watched it the people who actually served in uh the air force and served on bomber crews said that this is the most accurate depiction of it in theaters at the time for mm-hmm. several decades. And I think the reason why is because like, it doesn't totally make sense why he, he freaks out like that. Like it not, not makes sense. Like in a dramatic narrative mm-hmm. sense. I mean, it just doesn't, there's no clear thing like, Oh, he sees this horrible thing and in it, and it messes with him. It's like, no, it's just like, it's another mission. It's a little bit maybe worse than the other missions, but for some reason, this has just happened to be the thing that broke him mm-hmm. and he can't, he can't, you know, not mm-hmm. broken permanently, but you know, it, it affected him in a way that he can't, he tries to get on a plane right later yeah. on and he can't do it. Right. And somebody takes his place, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. One of the, one of the reasons he started the leper column. Right. And that's like his redemption type thing, place. which is really cool when it happens. Um, I wish I, I wish I could remember that exactly. Like, I gotta be honest. Like I've seen too many movies like this. And I'm probably confusing it with like, mm. you know, the damn busters or something else. But, um, but he, he had, a, he had a injury himself. The guy who replaced who's him, the guy who like, like basically is blind and goes up and 
and and uh, Gregory Peck catches him getting out of a plane after one of the missions. Yeah, I don't is that remember. the is that the bureaucrat guy? Is that the? I think so. I think so. The, that guy is my yeah. He's my second favorite character after the angry general guy. Mm-hmm. He is. He's the guy who like he's the one who helps him like slow walk all the transfer requests, right? Right. Yeah. And there's that. There's a scene at some point where he has his uh, PTSD kind of moment where he just gets incredibly drunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's I don't think it's meant to be funny. It's more like kind of like Gregory Peck treats it like it's a. Like he just kind of lets it go in a way, but he he talks to him for a little bit. See, like this guy has something he needs to get off his chest. I'm going to let him talk. And, <laughs> yeah. Are you drunk, Colonel Stovall? I am a little. I believe I warned the general it might happen again sometime. Keep it going till tomorrow night and I'll join you. I believe I shall, sir. I got drunk because I am confused. All at once, I couldn't remember what any of them looked like. I, I couldn't see their faces. Bishop, Cobb, Wilson, Zimmy, all of them. All of you. They all looked alike, just one face, and it was very young. It confused me. I think I shall stay drunk until I'm not confused anymore. Stay with it, Harvey. And that's what's interesting about this movie, too, is it does something that I don't think any Star Wars movie can afford to do, which is it's really not a single. There's like one main story, but there's a lot of tiny stories in between. Yeah. It's very much like a I mean, it's a classic war movie in that sense, right? Like where, you know, like in the tradition of, you know, it's like the things they carried type thing, right? If you've read that, what's that guy's name? Tim O'Brien. Is that his name? I have carried. I've not read that. Okay. Um, I, I have not, uh, definitely not, uh, finished it. It was too depressing as mm-hmm. I recall. I think it's a short story collection. So I know I've read some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Um, and if it's not, if his name isn't Tim O'Brien, it's some other kind of like Irish sixties name. I'm apologize mm-hmm. to our Irish sixties listeners. It's kind of like that. where like everybody. And that's, that's the idea of like, um, these war movies is they're always, they're always like, it's about the unit coming together as a whole, but they're all individuals. And they're all from other parts of the United States. And mm-hmm. like, even, even Brooklyn Johnny, he's all right. He's not so bad. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's really, it's a, it's just, it's, it is an inspiring movie. And it's interesting because it's not about how like somebody goes in and like Gregory Peck shows up and he's a hard ass, but it's not like he's just doing it for their own good. It's like, he's like, no, I've got to get you guys back to baseline back into the military mindset. This isn't real enough for you guys yet. Or, or you're, you know, those of you who fought, it's like you're in a, there's like a dichotomy between those who are fighting and those who are not and avoiding it. And mm-hmm. I honestly don't know how that, that could factor into the last Jedi. I'm really confused no. by this. Oh yeah. Like you wonder if it's the morale because both sides are going to be suffering from morale issues um, or just how you have a group come together and what group in the last Jedi would that be? It'll, so it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see what, how it ties in. If, if the advance word, or I guess you just call them rumors, but they're not really rumors. It's more like suggestions that 
Poe Dameron is kind of has to is being groomed for leadership essentially mm-hmm. in this movie, and um, like more than just like leading a, a flight squadron, he's like being he's being tasked with actually like becoming like a major leadership figure within the resistance. That right. might be what you're getting here. I was thinking at first Leia story, but maybe Leia is like kind of the the higher up general who kind of gives Gregory Peck a seemingly impossible task and because mm-hmm. he knows that he can take care of it. You know? Right. But then you also have the Admiral Haldo played by Laura Dern and how does she figure in too? That is a big mystery to me. Nothing about that makes sense. I mean, not in a bad way. It's just like, I'm just confused. Like how, right. how, uh, first of all, I've never heard of a vice admiral before, but it sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. I thought it's like, Have I you... guess rear admiral hall. Well, it doesn't sound that great. <laughs> no. Have you read the Leia princes of Alderaan novel? No, but I've heard people like you talk about it. So, um, yeah, I, I love, and this is a version of her that's 16 years old, but I, I love her character in that book. So I'm re- I'm, I want to see what's going to happen with her. I wonder if she is going to be the, everybody kind of assumes that if she's like an antagonistic figure, not antagonistic, but kind mm-hmm. of like a contrary figure to Leia, that she's going mm-hmm. to be more hard ass or something like that. But maybe she's the opposite. Maybe. Maybe she's like the Brigadier General that, Gregory Peck replaces who is not a bad general, but he's too close to his men. And he, I can, yeah. part, part of me can, can see that because if, if I may give a little bit of insight into Leia princess of Alderaan yes. in, in the book there, she is the ultimate space hippie. Uh, her hair is a different color. Every scene she's in, she's always saying these wacky things um, she does this like weird acrobatic and she goes to different star systems to look at the alignment of the stars. So she is very much a space hippie. So you could see that she would be the one who's friends with the people underneath her. However, at when it counts, she gets stuff done. Um, there's at least one instance where her quick thinking saves the situation from certain doom. So how could you, how it's tough to reconcile. Well, she could be the one who gets too close with her subordinates while at the other time, she's just so inherently smart that she can step in and, and get out of situations, out of bad situations. So it's one, it's got, it's one or the other, but I don't, I don't know. I'm not go, I'm, I'm not leaning towards space hippie who's too close with everyone around. Uh, my, this is, now, correct me if I'm wrong about this, because this is just like what I hear through the grapevine and like I sometimes misinterpret what I hear or sometimes I imagine that I heard something that never, ever was said by anyone anywhere. Um, but uh-huh. she's not technically resistance, right? Like she is actually from the New Republic. Is that I I don't know, because uh, they had a Starfleet of some kind that gets wasted along with the the late Hosnian Prime and those other four planets that are mysteriously close to Maz's planet. Um, such that right. people can actually see right. them from the planet. Sir. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, which Admiral Akbar is supposedly too, but he's there with them at the end of Force Awakens. Well, Ak- Akbar had retired. Oh, really? In I thought before Bloodline he retired, and then when Leia at the end of that novel puts out the call for people to come help, I think that's when he comes oh, to join. If, yeah, if Haldo is, oh no, if, if Haldo is with the Republic, you would have to think, looking at the state of 
galactic politics as a whole. The Republic Central system has been destroyed. I, I'd say that's a, I don't know about you, but in my book, that's an act of war. So the Republic is probably declaring war on the First Order. And maybe they are they and the Resistance once again are becoming one. So who's going to be in charge here? And you probably have some figures in the Republic who, why don't we give up to the First Order? So maybe it's juggling all of those. I think, yeah, it could be. I think that would be kind of, I mean, I wouldn't be disappointed if they did that, where she's like, uh, not a first order sympathizer, but like more like a, like playing the realist cards. Like, look, we have no choice. Like mm-hmm. we thought we blew up their, their base. And it turns out they've got a 60 kilometer wide starship that can yeah. create other starships. So um, mm-hmm. like, what do we do here? Like to avoid bloodshed, we just have to surrender. Right. And we'll bide our time and then we'll rebel again. But if that's what it is, I feel like we've seen that before. But if it's, if what it is, is that she is, because here's the other thing we know is that there are bombers in the resistance now, right? Yeah. You would think, and that th- you would think they would have brought those to fight Starkiller base. Cause technically what they were doing was like a, mm-hmm. a bombing mission. That was like a, yeah, but they didn't have them and we don't see them anywhere. And the resistance is apparently very, very small. It mm-hmm. seems like the resistance is like all the people who were like worth a damn within the the Republic's uh, fleet kind of like, no, we want to fight. Like we're <laughs> going to like and they join this like splinter group that is like barely tolerated by the official government. Um, yeah. And in the Poe Dameron comic series, they're on the edge of running out of fuel for good. Yes. Yeah, so I don't think they have giant bomber fleets is what I'm thinking. And so I'm thinking yeah. that actually Admiral Holdo shows up and that's what she has. Now mm-hmm. that maybe I may be overthinking this and all that, but I'm just saying like, if that's her fleet, then she would have a natural point of contention with Leia. And it would be very much like what you see in this movie. Well, to be perfectly frank about it, when you took command down here, I was hoping you'd fail, fall flat on your face. I'm that human. So now me, the guy who blew it wants to tell you how to run this group. Shoot. All right. You're blowing it too. You can't drive those boys. I told you once before, there can't be just a set of numbers and it still goes. The fact that I blew it doesn't mean that idea was wrong. My failure was me. I wasn't good enough. You've got to help them, Frank. You've got to take the time to win something from them or they will walk out on you. And that'll be a worse failure than mine ever was. Here's where you and I part company. I don't think they're boys, they're men. Too bad they have to find out so young. How old is Bishop? 21, maybe. It's pretty tough to have to grow all the way up at 21. But that's the only way we're going to get the job done. And I think they can do it, too. Lean on somebody? I think they're better than that. And if that's not true, then we're a dead duck. And we'd better find out about it right now. Once and for all. But since we mentioned Akbar. Um, the reason why I got him confused and I think the reason why I was thinking like Akbar is still with the Republic, um, is well, for one is cause I know like it's his ship from return of the Jedi. One of them that you see getting blown up, but it's one of those mm-hmm. Mon Calamari like bubble tubes. And, um, yeah, but I think I was actually confusing it with the next thing we're going to talk about. And the last thing we're going to talk about, which is Michael Stackpole's, uh, X-Wing novels. Mm-hmm. Um, the first of which Rogue One is, is our chaser, our Star Wars chaser for the day. And I don't want to spend too much time on it because I actually don't want to spoil what's in this book. Cause I think that the, of all the, the stuff, especially in the nineties EU, 
mm-hmm. it's not the Thrawn trilogy, this is probably the most worth revisiting for for new fans or younger fans who who missed out on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not a big EU fan. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it just is. I'm really, frankly, not like a gigantic fan of anything that happens in novels nowadays, if it's not by Claudia Gray or Tim Zahn. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I just don't, not that they're not that the other authors are bad. It's more like their take on star Wars is not what I'm looking for. And, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that, that other people like it, which is great. So I'm not saying like Chuck winded sucks. Like he shouldn't be fire Chuck winded. I don't care. Like great. Like I hope you like, I hope people really like those books. And it sounds like a lot of people really ended up liking them after kind of a Rocky start, which is great. Yeah. Um, but you know, for me, like I kind of am picky about the tone that I want to see. And so I'll take like, I'll read like a young adult version of star Wars, like romance thing. If the writer has a voice that I like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so I, I really like Claudia Gray's, uh, stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is why I do want to eventually get to lay X. I've heard very good things. Yeah. Um, it's, I, yeah, I, it, I recommend it very highly. Have you read uh, the Thrawn book, the the new one? The new one, yes, I have. Um, what I, did you think of that? Overall, I thought it was good. I had some problems with the way it was written, um, the timing, because we didn't have a sense of how much time had passed between chapters. Um, and mm. this is this is off the top of my head. My, my problems with it. Uh, there were issues with some of the mysteries that were presented in the book. I you, I never we never got an answer as to which version of Thrawn's story that he told, which version was true. Oh, if it's like backstory, like why yeah. he was, yeah, his backstory. I thought he, I thought he pretty much told uh, Eli Vanto at the end that the Chiss whatever high command like placed him on that pl- prison planet specifically it, so he, he would be noticed did he tell was it vanto he told or was it the uh rebellion oh, yeah, guy he told a uh, night swan yeah yeah because it, like i was under the impression that okay if you're telling palpatine palpatine is going to be able to tell whether you're telling the truth or not where with the was it night swan the guy's name from the rebellion yeah night swan yeah. was the yeah yeah while well, he was telling him because he still wanted to he was manipulating him to use them. That was the impression I got. And I can understand having an unreliable narrator, but I would like more of a, a clue. But with, with, yeah. but what I appreciate about the, the Thrawn reboot novel is number one. I feel like it's the first time in any book I've read by Zahn about Thrawn that his like brilliant strategies actually seemed pretty well thought out. Whereas with like the original mm-hmm. Thrawn trilogy, I always felt like it's kind of like the Sherlock Holmes thing where it's like, well, yeah, he's brilliant because the guy who wrote it is omniscient and knows exactly what's going to happen. It's like, if you say like right. Sherlock Holmes can identify like the color of the dirt from like 19 different areas of London. And therefore he can mm-hmm. see footprints and know exactly where the killer came from. It's like, that's stupid. Like nobody can do that. And if you just say somebody can do that, it's not impressive. So if you've mm-hmm. got a character who's supposed to be a brilliant tactician and a brilliant mind that can deduce things, you've got a problem as an author because you've got to be as smart or almost as smart as you're saying that character is. And with the original Thrawn books, I felt like not all the time, some of the times it was really brilliant. Like I love how his, like the way he uses the evil uh, clone Jedi and like his idea of like tricking plants into thinking that they penetrated their shields. Yeah. yeah. is brilliant. And it, it does pay off and it builds on exactly what you know about star Wars and the Jedi and how they work. And that's, what's great about it. But other things where he's like, 
Luke Skywalker will have arrived at this. Uh, he will have transferred between the two ships now. And it's like, well, how did you know that it takes like exactly 15 seconds to move between these two ships? Like it doesn't mm-hmm. tell you and it just leaves it alone. And you're like, well, that's not smart. That just you're just making stuff up. But in the, in, in the new book, I thought like everything was pretty well established. Like it was building on stuff that you understood anyway. Mm-hmm. So what did you, what did you think about? I mean, I know you read these, bo- the, this book in the nineties and I know that of course, mm-hmm. neither of us had uh, time to actually finish it again as it's a long mm-hmm. book and I couldn't remember yeah. a specific scene, but was there anything in this book that made you think, Oh, this is like a star Wars take on, on the kinds of issues that we saw in like 12 o'clock high. It was, it was really weird going back to it from that point of view, because um, in this, in this novel, Wedge is pretty much putting together the team. Right. Let's, and let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, I'm sorry. Really fast. I forgot. I realized we had didn't oh. introduce like what this book actually is. Uh, oh, so, okay. okay. So this is okay. Before this is uh, no longer Canon. Let's get that out of the way. Mm-hmm. However, in my opinion, that doesn't make it any less of a story. And what it is, is it takes place very, very shortly after uh, return of the Jedi. It's like, I think there's like one other novel at this point that took place between, mm-hmm. and it's not a good one. So you should forget it. But, um, and this is like they're reforming Rogue Squadron, and uh, and but it's it's kind of when the Empire is not really defeated, but it's on the ropes, and they haven't mm-hmm. taken back Coruscant yet. But that's the second <laughs> book, I think, right? Well, well, in the old canon, Coruscant changed hands a number of times just because they didn't have anything planned out. So yeah, but I think I think you're right. This is before the first time the Rebels have taken. Course. I think it's the plot of the second X-Wing series, X-Wing novel. Um, yeah. Uh, which I think is called Wedge's Gambit. Mm-hmm. Sounds strangely X-Men-esque in a way. Maybe it's just because it's the 90s. It um, the, yeah. I guess with the X-Men, it'd be like Gambit's Wedge. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> Oh, I'm hilarious. Um, <clears throat> I need to punish myself for that later. I thought it was funny. Okay, good. Uh, and so the thing starts out and, and Wedge's issue, I think, is that he's been tasked with Admiral Akbar with reforming Rogue Squadron. They lost a lot of pilots, apparently, in the last battle of Return of the Jedi. Um, mm-hmm. And but Rogue Squadron is already famous throughout the galaxy as like the rebel hero squad. And right. It's very prestigious. It's known that Luke Skywalker was a part of it, even though he kind of wasn't really. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, and on the Battle of Hoth, right? Like where they mm-hmm. lost. Um, but yeah, but that, he, that was when he was on the, in that squad. And it, I guess it was formed out of the remnants of red group, right? Yeah. I think that was the idea uh, from, from the original death star battle and Admiral Akbar tasked wedge with, with reforming it. But now he's got political considerations where the very beginning of the book, it's talking about how he's got to reform red squad or rogue squadron, but he's got to get uh, all the important member worlds of the new Republic um, like, yeah, they all want, they all want their person on Rogue Squadron. Everyone wants to put their ace in there, whether they really deserve to be in there or not. And it's, that to me was really interesting. And then on top of that, he's dealing with some other problems, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, um, they think there's a, uh, do they think there's a spy in their midst? Is that, does that not come well, out till the end of the book? I think in the end of the book, they realize for sure there's a spy. I'm pretty sure. Or if it's mm-hmm. either the end of this book or it's the beginning of the next book. But they've got right. a former Imperial pilot and prisoner. Yeah. Uh, Tycho. Tycho, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he was, I'm not really sure what his backstory is supposed to be. I have a feeling it was from the Rogue Squadron 
comics from Dark Horse, which I've never looked at. No, I have not either. Which take place before the novels, but were written concurrently with them by the same guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm right. I, I think I got that right. Um, and he was imprisoned, and as everybody knows, uh, what the Empire only keeps prisoners for two reasons at this point. <laughs> so <laughs> they will torture them to get information, and if they can't do that, or after they've done that, they will brainwash them and send them back. Um, or mm-hmm. they'll kill them, you know, that's, or they'll enslave them, you know, send them to the spice mines, etc. And so they're pretty sure that mm-hmm. Tycho was brainwashed in some way and that he's like a sleeper agent, whether he knows it or not. Yeah. And they've got this like weird way of keeping him on the squad. I think, do you recall? Mm-hmm. He's like the, I don't want to say the administrative assistant, but he's like, he's like their backup. And I think he coordinates things. He's a, a lot like that one officer in 12 o'clock high who befriends Gregory Peck very early on and kind of has his back. That's what, that's the role from my recollection that Tycho plays. Yeah. They give him, I think they put him in like, uh, they don't put him in X-Wing. I think they put him in a Z-95, which used yeah. to be a very, yes. very important yeah. ship. Um, which one? It's, it is canon. It, it's still canon, right? But it's been changed so many times. Yeah. It's like, Nobody, mm-hmm. there's like so many different models of it. Um, but it was originally yeah. first introduced by Brian Daly in uh, Han Solo at Star's yep. End. Uh, but anyway, mm-hmm. I love Brian Daly so much. I wish I could just do a Brian Daly cast oh, yeah. and just like everything would be like a separate page of one of his books. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's so great. I just like, I've been yeah. collecting like all the hardcover versions, like the book club editions of the Han Solo's uh, Adventures novels. Oh, really? Oh, they're so, the artwork is so gorgeous and the writing is beautiful. Yeah. And he was actually in the military. So all a lot of the oh. terminology that he uses that stuck in Star Wars forever after um, is actually real mm-hmm. military terminology that he knew from life experience. Oh. And he was very irritated uh, by later novels in the 90s that would make up stuff and get things wrong. Hmm. Um, probably uh, not justly so, but, you know, it yeah. irritated him from personal experience. I mean, it doesn't really matter, but. Uh, so I think they put him in a Z95. It's been like uh, the weapons have been disabled or they're like only firing tracers or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tycho cannot, that way he can't like double cross and shoot down his own teammates. Right. And so, and like, I think the first or one of the first battles in the book, um, the hero of the series, who's not wedge, who is uh, what's his name? Um, what's his name? Cornhorn. Cornhorn. That's yeah. right. A Corellian. Yes. Uh, uh, is uh, his his craft is uh, the engines are disabled and mm-hmm. all you can really do is like kind of wiggle around and shoot torpedoes. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what uh, Tycho ends up doing is using his uh, ship to fly around, select targets and transfer those targets to Cornhorn's computer um, mm-hmm. who can then fire the torpedoes and stuff. Right. And, uh, and this is where you get into a lot of the stuff in this book, the way the X-Wings work and things like that are actually from... Mm-hmm the old X-Wing DOS video games, which these were supposed to be like tie-in novels. Yes. Did you play those? I loved those games. Um, I spent a lot of time in high school playing the X-Wing game, the TIE Fighter game. Wasn't a big fan of X-Wing versus TIE Fighter. Uh, but the, the original two, I absolutely loved. I purchased um, through Steam a year or two ago because they're on Steam, either Steam or good old games. Um, and I tried playing them again recently on my computer, but... I just don't like how, uh, and I have this with a few other games too, you know, there are games I played and beat 20 years ago and I spent a lot of time on back then, but if I get them now, I have to start all over at the beginning. 
And yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if there's there's there was a cheat mode or something where I can go in and just start blowing up star destroyers. Yeah. Uh, but that was I, you're you're right. It was a tie-in to, or maybe a response to the success of the game because in '96 the games came out and or X-Wing came out in 93, TIE Fighter in 94, they had come out with some expansion packs. So these really did um, play off of that. And I remember reading it, and having been playing X-Wing for a few years leading up to this, you were able to see in the cockpit, and you know what they're talking about, you know, about right. going back and forth between speed and shields and weapons. And it, 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 I don't know that, you know, not everyone who read the book played the game, not everyone who played the game read the book. But it was it was definitely fun to have both ends, and guess, he, you know both both sides. And here's the fascinating part: the guy I can't remember his name. I wish I wrote this down because it didn't occur to me to put this in my notes. But the guy who designed X Wing and Tie Fighter and the other games in that series, his first games for Lucas Arts were uh, uh, games like um, I believe. Uh, I think one of them was called B seventeen Flying Fortress or something like that. Because they, oh, they, they World War Two games. Yeah, Lucas Arts had a selection of World War Two games. Wow, I didn't know that. They were really good uh, flight sims, and they said mm-hmm. when the, Lucas Arts finally was able to start doing Star Wars games in the nineties, early nineties. Because before that, the yeah. license was bought out already. It was it was like Atari had it for the arcades, uh, JVC had mm-hmm. it for consoles and stuff like that. And uh, there's a weird game made by Bondi in Japan and um, with Darth Scorpion. How could we ever forget? Uh, was that the NES? Was that the NES Star Wars the game? Japan only NES Star Wars game. There are actually two. Oh, yeah. okay. This is crazy, crazy, crazy stuff to, to learn about. But um, <laughs> the old weird Star Wars, as I call it. Uh, but uh, uh-huh. yeah, but th- so he actually learned a lot about uh, World War Two air combat before he made the X-Men games. And when he made the X-Men games, it is, I kid you not, like he took every single mention of flight controls from the original Star Wars and the other original trilogy movies and turned them all into game mechanics. Mm -hmm. Almost everything you see in those games is mentioned offhand by one of the pilots in the Death Star battle. Like where he says like, switch switch shields to full forward or position or something like that you're like what does that mean in a movie yeah. in the game it makes perfect sense it's like you have like you have your shield yeah. that surrounds the entire ship and and absorbs damage or you can press the s button a couple times and it toggles it could be either p- focus all the shield energy behind you so if you're running away from somebody that's what you do if you're running towards somebody you put all your shield energy in front of you and that was as far as i can tell george lucas on his own coming up with that idea and forgetting about it completely. Pretty much. Like it just, yeah. it's a throwaway line, but it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And this is why when people like think like, Oh, you're too hard on George Lucas. Like, no, you don't understand. Like even George Lucas doesn't know how brilliant he is. Yeah. Like if he got that from some old sci-fi novel, I've never found it. I mean, maybe he did, but it's not in star Trek. I don't think. Um, so all that stuff is there and it got, it got put into the video games and actually having the video games there makes the novels easier to understand because it's really hard to write Right. fake space dog fights mm-hmm. you know it I, I still go back to the game reading star wars novels now it goes back to those games and that's how you know i, I visualize things when i read and that's one of the ways that, in which i do it to me though i mean it's also as good as that is i still find that the x-wing novel when i go back to it i have a hard time following the action in a lot of the dog fight descriptions as good as they are mm-hmm. And I think they're probably as good as any. I think this might just be my problem and not the writer's problem. 
but I have trouble keeping track of where everybody is and what they're doing. I can, I can, yeah, that happens to me too. Anyway, I think I've kept you up long enough. Uh, we probably got to <laughs> cut it short, but yeah, kids out there, uh, if you want to check out an old uh, Legends uh, thing, they're all back in print now. And uh, yep. uh, check out uh, Michael Stackpole's uh, X-Wing series. The first one is a good novel. Uh, it's worth checking mm-hmm. out. It's interesting. It's not a huge story. It's a small story, but it's a fun mm-hmm. story. Uh, also, yeah. check out those uh, DOS games. And uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say, uh, remember to donate to the Kessel Toy Run, which is uh, being done by our buddy uh, and uh, man among men, Hawes Burkhart. Um, mm-hmm. Go to uh, check out their Twitter feed. They'll have all the information there at Kessel Toy Run on Twitter. Um, and uh, donate some toys to kids. Can't be home for the holidays, have to be in the hospital. And, you know, like I said, like I always say, give a hoot uh, and, and do your part. And that's what that's what being a fan is all about. Thank you for joining me, Tom. I really, really appreciate it. You've been a great Thanks. guest. Thanks for having me, Rob. Uh, I would love Thanks. to have you back anytime. And uh, I'll come back. <laughs> excellent. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah. We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this and we're done talking about it. And everybody, uh, you're uh, at, uh, what, what are you on Twitter? In case people want to. Tom Chansky. At Tom Chansky on Twitter. Yep. And I'm at uh, GCINX, which has nothing to do with Robbo, but there we are. So until next time, so long, suckers! Suck, 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 suck.